For hardcore golf fans, this weekend is Christmas. Why? Because it's the weekend of the Ryder Cup matches of 2023. Two teams of 12 professional golfers, one team representing Europe and the other the United States of America. The competition will take place on a golf course just outside Rome, Italy. In a nutshell, these competitions, the Ryder Cup, are match play. It's not stroke play as a normal PGA or European PGA tournament format where all the golfers are competing against one another and it's total strokes. In match play, you play by the hole. Whoever wins the hole gets a a point, so to speak. There's 18 points available because there's 18 holes in a round of golf. And it doesn't matter what the score is. The object is for you or your partner, and I'll explain what that means, to win the hole. It's a very prestigious competition. There is much money involved, although interesting, the players who are accustomed to playing for large amounts of money, even though all the players are handsomely compensated for competing in the Ryder Cup, it's as close as these professional golfers will come to being amateurs again, because it's not about the money. It's about winning the Ryder Cup. When the Ryder Cup first started, the Americans certainly dominated. But over the past number of years, the Americans have found the sledding rather tough, even on home soil. But when the matches are in Europe, it's been nothing short of famine almost. Now, you'll notice I said that the competition is in the form of matches. And on the first day, there will be four matches in the morning and another four in the afternoon. The same scenario will be repeated on the second day, on Saturday, the Saturday. And the matches are in pairs format in that two Americans will play two Europeans in each match. These Friday and Saturday matches have very curious names, foursomes and fourball. On this side of the pond, foursomes is more commonly called alternate shots, which each team playing one ball and alternating the shots, while fourball is usually called better ball in North America. In this type of match, each player plays his own shots or ball, with the better score on the team counting for the team. Curiously enough, in match play, as opposed to medal play, as I indicated, you may not have to actually get the ball into the hole. Your opponent can concede the putt, in which case you pick up your ball as though you had made the putt. Yes, there's some gamesmanship in this conceding of putts business, One part of the contest I don't like and I never have. Golf is about putting the ball into the hole. Full stop. If your team has the better score on a hole, it wins the hole. And since there are only 18 holes to play in a match, 
If you have won more holes than there are holes left to play, your team wins that match and gets a point for the team, United States or Europe. And points are what it's all about. So let's go there. With 16 matches on Friday and Saturday, obviously there are 16 points to be won. But on Sunday, all the players on each team, there are 12 per side, play singles, which makes the total number of points available 28. If a match ends in a tie, it's said that the match is halved, then each side secures a half point. Now here's where the curious doesn't begin to describe it. If at the end of all 28 matches, each team has 14 points, the team that won the last Ryder Cup matches gets to keep the trophy and the substantial bragging rights that go with it. Therefore, a side must win at least 14 and a half points to rescue the Ryder Cup from their opponent if their opponent were the last to win. So one team has to really win 14 and a half points. So why do I include this Ryder Cup event in a, a podcast about curling? Well, even though golf is pretty much the quintessential individual sport, this event places more value on the team dynamics of the two sides that is evident to even the most avid of golf fans. The Europeans of late seem to bond better than the Americans. Some of the knowledgeable golf commentators have said it's much more likely that you'll see European players sharing a libation and fellowship than you will the Americans. There's more of a sense that we're in this together on the European side. The participants, as I said, are all professional golfers, some of whom are not just millionaires, some are billionaires. But they won't play that way, because you see, this weekend, they can lose. When they play a professional tournament, it's all about how much they can win. You see, it's someone else's money. It's only the matter of the size of the slice of the pie. You're going to see some angst on the faces of otherwise pretty cool customers as they feel the weight of the country and the team on their shoulders. No one wants to lose the match that clinches the point or half point that wins the Ryder Cup for the opposition. Now it's about winning and losing, something they don't face on a regular basis and something for which they are not really trained. That's where the captains come in. The captain of the American team is Zach Johnson, the European by Luke Donald. Captaining a Ryder Cup team is an honor professional golfers covet. The pride that's taken by winning this event is like nothing else in golf. It's the Masters, U.S. and British Opens, and the PGA all rolled into one. For golf fans, it's the best competition in the sport they'll see for the next two years. It's quite simply great theater. In 2008, Captain Paul Azinger, to solidify the team dynamics on the American side, put his 12 players into three pods based on a variety of common characteristics. 
One pod was euphemistically called the Rednecks, as they hailed from the southern states. The pairings for the foursomes and fourball came from within each pod. It was this in mind, and in the mind of many golfers and others, that it was a stroke of genius on Captain Azinger's part. Those common experiences and characteristics of the players in each pod played a vital role in the Americans' win. Both captains will try to inspire their team to put them into the best mindset so they can play as well as they are able. Although I doubt very much that either captain will hear this episode of the podcast, I'm going to weigh in with my two cents worth. First, the only people who really matter are your teammates, not the country, not your family and friends, and certainly not the captain. Everything you do is to support your teammates, and that support must be unconditional. Second, trust your skills. They're all you've got, so why wouldn't you trust them? And trust the skills of your teammates. Third, be disciplined and sweat the small stuff. Don't try too hard. Don't be afraid to fail. Don't try to be the hero and do things you know are unlikely you'll be successful in doing. Stay within yourself. In fact, it's opposed to trying to do more, but really do less. We mentioned this in the last podcast. Do less, but do it better. Lastly, and you know what I'm going to say, have the right attitude. As you walk to the first tee, On that first morning, say to yourself, I just can't wait to play. Recently, on everybody's favorite Facebook, there was a photograph of Bruce Mowat delivering a a curling rock. I'm not sure what competition it was. And it drew my attention. I made reference to it on Facebook, and I'd like to do it here on this episode of the Pain and Glass podcast. Curlers deliver with a sliding device. In most cases, that sliding device is a brush, although it can be a stabilizer, small s on stabilizer. I have seen some homemade sliding devices some of which I must put into the curious category. Not very often do we see a curler deliver without some sort of sliding device, although, going back to the days when I coached at the University of Waterloo, there was a a young athlete, a male athlete, who uh, had been encouraged by his father, the coach, to deliver without a sliding device all the time. In practice, every once in a while, it was my uh, encouragement that if we did a drill, if any of my athletes wished, they could discard their sliding device to establish absolute 100% confidence in their balanced slide. So I think it was a, a good practice modality, although I do believe that you should deliver with some sort of sliding device. But the point of all this is going back to the photograph of Bruce Mowat. He was using his 
brush, but he didn't have it tucked across his hip the way you would think in the traditional sense. He had it flat on the ice surface. And here was the key point, and this is what I mentioned on my reply to the, uh, the, the, the photograph. The inside of his arm that held the sliding device, in this case it was the brush on the ice surface, touched the outside of his leg. Obviously, it was his sliding leg. So I'll repeat that because this is the key point here. When you use a sliding device, not in the traditional uh, position of the brush across your hip, if it's on the ice surface, either with a brush or a stabilizer, the key is to use it so that the inside of your arm touches the outside of your leg. When I was at the National Training Center at the uh, at the Glencoe Club in Calgary, Alberta, Brett Waldruff, who is now our head official in Canada, known Brett for a long time, but I first met Brett because he was the curling director at the Glencoe Club. And I was using a stabilizer, but I was holding it out more or less the way you would hold a brush. I was holding it sort of at 45 degrees to my body, but my arm was extended. And he said to me, Bill, he said, try this. Hold the stabilizer so that the inside of your arm touches the outside of your leg. I went out on the ice and tried it. Could not believe the difference. That's the way to hold a sliding device. Now, I'm going to extend this. Um, Learn to Curl programs are starting at your curling facility at this time of the year. And I strongly urge curling facilities, if you are running a Learn to Curl program, please give the... uh, curling aspirants, if I can use that term, encourage them to use some sort of stabilizing device, a stabilizer, I'll stick with that term, or to hold the brush the way Bruce is holding the brush on the ice surface at his side or at their side in this case. They can use the the brush in the traditional uh, position um, at, at some other time. But when they get onto the ice surface, if you give them a stabilizer and get them to hold it so that the inside of their arm is touching the outside of your leg, by participant observation over many years of experience with this, they will achieve balance much more quickly in that scenario. So there's a tip for all curling facilities who are working with people new to our sport. Use a stabilizer, encourage them to have the inside of their arm that holds a stabilizer touching the outside of the leg. And if you, as a curler, have never tried that, give it a try. I think you'll be just as amazed as I would. So, Brett Waldorf out there, Thank you very much for that tip. It is, and it was, and it still is, a good one. I'd like to 
end today's episode with a soundbite. This soundbite came from the commanding officer at the United States Air Force Academy, and you will hear the acronym USAFA, United States Air Force Academy. There was a situation where some racial slurs were posted on a whiteboard, and the commanding officer found out about it. I want you to hear what he said to 4,000 cadets, staff, and officers. This podcast has dealt with diversity, equity, and inclusion, and racism. The episode that I devoted to the play that I saw, The New Canadian Curling Club, was on that topic. So I'm going to end today's episode with this soundbite. Very serious ending of the episode today. I hope that it will uh, stir some thoughts on all our parts. So I will sign off uh, now. Uh, Stay safe. And we'll see you in one week. Now for the soundbite. You may have heard that some people down in the prep school wrote some racial slurs on some message boards. If you haven't heard that, I wanted you to hear it from me. If you're outraged by those words, then you're in the right place. That kind of behavior has no place at the prep school, it has no place at USAFA, and it has no place in the United States Air Force. You should be outraged not only as an airman, but as a human being. And I'll tell you that the appropriate response for horrible language and horrible ideas, the appropriate response is a better idea. So that's why I'm here. That's why all these people are up here on the staff tower. So let me have everybody who's up here, please pull forward to the rails. Also, there are so many people here, they're lining the outsides along the windows. These are members of the faculty, coaching staff, AOCs, AMTs, from the airfield, from my staff, from my headquarters. All aspects of the 10th Air Base Wing, all aspects that make up USAFA and the United States Air Force Academy. Leadership is here. You heard from Brigadier General Goodwin. Brigadier General Armacost is here. Colonel Block from the Athletic Department is here. Mr. Knowlton is in Washington, D.C. right now. That's why they're here. That's why we're all here, because we have a better idea. Some of you may think that that happened down in the prep school and doesn't apply to us. I would be naive, and we would all be naive to think that everything is perfect here. We would be naive to think that we shouldn't discuss this topic. We would also be tone deaf not to think about the backdrop of what's going on in our country. Things like Charlottesville and Ferguson, the protests in the NFL. That's why we have a better idea. One of those ideas, the dean brought people together to discuss Charlottesville. 
Because what we should have is a civil discourse and talk about these issues. That's a better idea. We received outstanding feedback from that session at Charlottesville. But I also have a better idea. And it's about our diversity. And it's the power of the diversity, the power of the 4,000 of you and all of the people that are on the staff tower and lining the glass, the power of us as a diverse group, the power that we come from all walks of life, that we come from all parts of this country, that we come from all races, we come from all backgrounds, gender, all makeup, all upbringing. The power of that diversity comes together and makes us that much more powerful. That's a much better idea than small thinking and horrible ideas. We have an opportunity here, 5,500 people in this room, to think about what we are as an institution. This is our institution and no one can take away our values. No one can write on a board and question our values. No one can take that away from us. So just in case you're unclear on where I stand on this topic, I want to leave you with my most important thought today. If you can't treat someone with dignity and respect, then you need to get out. If you can't teach someone from another gender, whether that's a man or a woman, with dignity and respect, then you need to get out. If you demean someone in any way, then you need to get out. And if you can't treat someone from another race or a different color skin with dignity and respect, then you need to get out. Reach for your phones. I'm serious, reach for your phones. Okay, you don't have to reach for your phones. I'm going to give you an opportunity to reach for your phones. Grab your phones. I want you to videotape this so that you have it, so that you can use it. So that we all have the moral courage together. All of us on the staff tower, lining the glass, all of us in this room. This is our institution. And if you need it, and you need my words, then you keep these words. And you use them, and you remember them, and you share them, and you talk about them. If you can't treat someone with dignity and respect, then get out.